0: The Peter Schiff Show. Earlier today, we got the release of the most recent Federal Open Market Committee minutes. And, you know, before the minutes came out, and they come out at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. But prior to the release, all the stock markets were down. The Dow was down maybe about 150 points or so. And when the minutes came out, we got a rally and the Dow closed up about 50 points. So 200 point rally on the minutes. And the reason that the minutes acted as a catalyst for the rally is that they were interpreted uh, to be a bit more dovish uh, than what was generally expected, although to me, uh, the minutes were pretty much as expected. I mean, I'd already been talking about the... Fed's view that inflation can go above 2%, that they were willing to allow for some kind of symmetrical inflation, the symmetry meaning, well, we were below 2% uh, for a long time, and so now we could be above 2%. But I guess for some reason, the markets focused in on that. Specifically, the Minutes read that it is noted that a temporary period of inflation modestly above 2% would be consistent with the committee's symmetrical inflation objective and could be helpful in anchoring longer-run inflation expectations at a level consistent with that objective. Now, to me, I don't know why allowing inflation to be higher than 2% is somehow helpful at achieving their 2% objective. I mean, to me, if they just kind of kept it at 2%, that would be more helpful if indeed that was their uh, their real objective. But even if you look at the language that they use, they don't really define what symmetrical group can be. Uh, they talk about inflation uh, being modestly above 2%. Well, what is modestly? Is it 2.1? What about 2.5? Is 0.5 modest? I mean, they don't really define what modest is. I have a feeling, again, that that there's never going to be a definition, that it's going to be an ever-moving goalpost that even 3% uh, could be modest. Hey, it's only 1%, right? That's modest, right? Uh, But obviously, on a percentage basis, you wouldn't consider to be 3% modest. I mean, you're above 2% by 50%. I mean, 50% is not a modest percentage, but they could say 1% is a modest percentage. I mean, who knows? I mean, I think the Fed is going to be looking for every excuse under the book not to raise interest rates aggressively, no matter how uh, high inflation gets. But of course, they're not going to be that transparent. The last last thing they'd want to do is let the markets know uh, that they're that impotent when it comes to inflation fighting. But certainly their language leaves a lot of room For opinion. But the markets looked at that and they rallied. Now, there was a statement in there uh, where the Fed uh, members believed that it would be appropriate to hike rates or to remove accommodation soon. That was the word soon. And so, because they said it would be appropriate to raise rates soon, uh, everybody interprets that to be next month, June. But I mean, the markets were already expecting. A June rate hike, so I don't think uh by implying that the hike would come in june uh is you know is is anything that the markets didn't expect, although soon to me I mean does soon mean June, I mean, even if they didn't raise rates in June and they waited till September, I mean you could still argue that that's soon I mean it's not as soon as next month, but again, soon doesn't have a particular meeting, and so I still think that if the Fed doesn't want to raise rates in June that saying that they're going to raise rates soon does not commit them to actually do it, although to the extent that the market seems to be, you know, waving the flag and saying, yeah, yeah, we're okay uh, with a rate height in June, uh, the Fed tends to do that, but it's still possible that they're not going to do that. The reason, is of course, that they might not do that would be if there happens to be some particular weakness in the stock market, right, not the weakness that we have now, I mean, the Dow is still you know it's not you know above twenty five thousand it was, and it moved uh it moved below yesterday, but I mean we're twenty four uh eight eighty six i mean i again, I don't think the Fed is going to be nervous about the level of the market until it's down near twenty thousand, which it certainly could do anything could happen between now and the June meeting uh the probability is probably that it won't be that low by that meeting. The bond market might be something that is more problematic uh, for the Fed. Now, yields on the 10-year are still above 3%, but they took a decisive move down uh, today. The, mo- the rate went all the way down to 3.03. Uh, so the bond market, again, uh, interpreting the FOMC minutes as being on the other side. In fact, if you look at what the Fed is saying, they're also talking about the fact that we're a lot closer To a neutral rate of interest than they may have prior, they might have felt in the past, and that there's really not that many rate hikes left. I mean, maybe the markets are looking for two or three rate hikes this year, but I think what people are now starting to think is that that may be it. I mean, after this year, the Fed is done hiking, and so maybe the highest the Fed gets is about two and a half percent, and then they're done hiking. Now, the question that people should be asking is, why? I mean, why are they stopping at two and a half percent? I mean, they've never stopped at such a low level before. So if two and a half percent, you know, didn't cap prior hikes, I mean, in two, 2000 to 2008, when they were raising rates, the Fed got above five percent uh, before they stopped. So why now only two and a half percent? And I think the reason should be obvious is that we have so much more debt now than we had then. The economy is so much more overlevered that we can't afford 5%. So maybe people think we can afford 2.5%, but in reality, we can't even afford that. I don't even think we can afford the interest rates that exist today, even before. Of course, it's going to take some time for the markets to you know, come to that conclusion, but given the amount of debt that exists, both on a government level, on a corporate level, and then, of course, also on an individual level, I think they have already raised interest rates to the point where it's going to be very problematic for the economy. But what that also means, if the new high rate is 2.5%, that means the next time we do have a recession and they have to cut rates, they're starting from 25 which means they don't have as much room as they would normally have before they have to do quantitative easing, which means that the quantitative easing program is going to have to you know, carry a bigger share of the burden than it did in the past, right? Because if you don't have as many rate cuts and you want to stimulate the economy, then more of the stimulus is going to have to be accomplished by quantitative easing. And of course, again, what people are still not doing is, all right, let's assume that we get through another uh, recession that's going to be huge and the Fed cuts rates to zero, right? And does another round of quantitative easing. And so the balance sheet blows up to much bigger than the $4.5 trillion, And then let's further assume that it works again, right? That somehow that they're able to do it a third time, right? I've been saying that it's three strikes, they're out, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they can do it again. Then what? So then what, where does, where do interest rates stop next time? One and a quarter? One? Right? Because every time they do this and they blow a bigger bubble and they create more debt, the high point of where interest rates could go is going to have to be lower and lower every time. And so eventually, they're going to be stuck at zero indefinitely. They won't be able to raise them at all, which is obviously a a non-sustainable situation. So before we get to that point, there needs to be a crisis that ensues that puts an end to it, which is why I think it's going to end now. I think the next time the Fed has to go back to that well, it's going to be dry. The next time they try to stimulate the economy, uh, with rate cuts and quantitative easing, is going to be the last because they're going to end up destroying the dollar and destroying the bond market in the process. I don't think that the bonds are going to react favorably to the idea that the Fed is now printing up more money to buy bonds. Just because they're bidding up the price of bonds, if they have to print you know, an unlimited amount of dollars to do so, there's no reason to buy those bonds because they're simply IOU dollars. And if you have to destroy the dollars to prop up the bond market, well, then the props don't matter because the bonds are going to collapse along with the dollar. You know, just one example of the way the rise in interest rates is already affecting or going to affect the economy. I got a call from a client or I talked to a client, uh, I think two days ago, and he was calling in to close out his account. And so I talked to him about why he wanted to close the account. He had a, a brokerage account. It wasn't actually that large an account. Uh, that he had, but it was it was you know it was a six figure account, but low six figures. He had he had um, I think a lot of my mutual funds in there, but a lot of individual stocks. In, and I asked him you know why he was closing the account, and it had nothing to do with the strategy. I mean, he still was very much on board. He still you know was a believer uh, that the dollar was going to go down, and he you know he kind of you know regretted the fact that he was closing his account. But he said the reason he wanted to do it was because his home equity loan. Uh, the interest, the cost on that loan had risen sharply, and he just wanted to pay it down before it got any higher. I mean, he said that he was paying about 3%, a little over 3%, and now it's a little over 5%. And so you're talking about about a 70% increase in the the cost of servicing this loan. And so he just wanted to pay the thing off. It was about a $200,000 loan, which was actually... More than the value of the account, so he was getting some of the money, I guess someplace else, and he was going to be able to pay you know more than half of it off with my account, but he was going to have to pull funds in from other sources in order to retire this loan uh, to get out from under these these monthly payments and you know so this is not necessarily affecting you know his consumption because he's you know he's got some assets that he could liquidate in order to pay off this loan, but obviously, there are a lot of people who have loans on their properties who don't have a brokerage account that they can tap into uh, to get out from under this liability. You've got a lot of Americans now who are living paycheck to paycheck that have home equity loans where they're getting similar increases in the cost to make these payments. Now, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you don't have extra money. And assuming you don't have a brokerage account that you could liquidate, How are people going to deal with these higher payments? And by the way, these payments are no longer tax deductible. So let's say last year you had a home equity line and you were paying 3% and maybe it was interest only and you're paying 3%. If you were itemizing your deductions, that 3% was deductible. So if you were in the the 30% tax bracket, you only had to pay 70% of 3% out of pocket Right, but now these uh home home equity loan interest payments are no longer deductible, even if you are itemizing but of course, a lot of people who were itemizing before are not itemizing now, so now, if you have a five percent interest payment, you've got to pay a hundred percent of that five percent. So if you take a look at the after tax impact, it's basically doubling uh your payments so where are people going to get the money? to make these higher payments, especially since they're not finished going up. Rates are going to keep rising. So the only way people are going to be able to do this is to cut back on some other spending. You know, what are you going to give up? Because now you have to spend more money on your your loan. Of course, you could default, right? Well, then, you know, then there's a foreclosure on your house. I mean, most people are probably not going to want to do that. So they're going to have to make uh, these payments. And where is the money going to come from? Obviously. It's, you know, at the expense of something else. So what happens to the people who rely on that something else, right? People who have jobs in those sectors that are now going to be deprived of money. You know, a lot of people were thinking, oh, you know, consumers getting these tax cuts, right? And this is going to lead to a lot of extra spending. Well, what if you've got a tax cut, but your home equity loan has now increased by an amount that exceeds The value of that tax cut. I mean, that's very easy. If someone has a couple hundred thousand dollars in a home equity loan and now it's costing them an extra three, four, five hundred dollars in monthly payments, chances are that exceeds the value of their tax cuts. And of course, remember, not everybody got tax cuts. There are some people, depending on where you live and how you're paying taxes, a lot of people got tax hikes. So now they're getting tax hikes and they have to pay more interest on their on their home equity loans, so this is going to reverberate throughout the economy. We're just barely starting to see the impact of this now. Now, I was talking to a friend of mine who is a real estate developer, and he was telling me that the bank that he uses has substantially cut back on his credit just recently that he said he was in a in a group uh, where he got certain terms like favorable terms on a lot of his commercial loans but that now he no longer qualifies to be included in that group because the bank said well you have to have at least 50 million dollars worth of loans to be in this group and he you know maybe he owes about 10 million or 20 million i think something like that on his portfolio of commercial property so now he's not in this group but because of that he lost a lot of these perks and he's actually now being forced to pay down his loans uh so that they're they're, they're smaller right and the, the cost the interest rates on those loans are going up, and you know he's just one guy, but this is happening obviously throughout the economy. And long-term interest rates are barely, you know, reacting yet. I mean, yeah, they're now above three percent, but we're, we've just broken out. So I think this, uh, the impact of increasing interest rates and how it's going to affect the economy, is really just getting started. Right, we're nowhere near the conclusion of this, either we're nowhere near the conclusion of the increase in the cost of credit, uh, but, um, we're nowhere near the, the, the impact that the higher cost of credit is going to have to con Remember, people got used to these ultra low rates, uh, for eight years, nine years. and right? And now all of a sudden you're taking that away. Even if it's not all of a sudden, even if they've taken it away gradually, they have still taken it away. And now people are going to have to deal, uh, in a world where their debt costs are much higher, this is going to have a, a big impact. Now, of course, you know, look at housing. And right? I was just reading an article too recently about the construction cost. I mean, one of the big uh, companies, Toll Brothers, came out yesterday. I think the stock was down, I don't know, 7 8%. It was a big drop. And the reason that uh, they missed earnings, they said, is, well, because the construction costs, lumber costs, copper costs, labor costs it's becoming more expensive for them uh, to build a new home. In fact, we got new home sales came out. Again, they were down today. Um, And I think at the higher end, uh, it wasn't as bad, but the the lower end or the medium sales were were, were even worse. But the problem is that not only is it more expensive to build homes because of the increase in material costs and maybe even the increase in wage costs, um, but as homes are becoming more expensive to build, they're also becoming more expensive to buy, right? Because the the mortgage rates are going up and they're going to continue to go up as will the cost of construction. And so what does that mean? Eventually, that, well, fewer homes are going to be built because fewer people can afford to buy the home. So now, you know, people lose their jobs that were employed in constructing new homes, right? Because when you have existing homes that are selling, nobody has to build those, I mean, yeah, there could be some jobs associated with those sales because the new owner might want to do some remodeling. And so there's going to be some uh, some employment there. But obviously, there's a lot more employment created by building a home from scratch than there is when somebody buys one and then you know spends a little bit of money fixing it up a bit. Now, I mentioned on the last podcast I did what's going on in the auto sector and with the um, uh, the decline in auto sales as the air is coming out of that bubble. And of course, a lot of people uh, make their living uh In that sector, not just in, in the manufacturing part of it, but, you know, there are, you know, all sorts of aspects When people buy new cars, um, you know, there, there are jobs associated with that. So a lot of the people who are making a living based on the discretionary spending that has been made possible by these artificially low interest rates, because people have have had income to spend that they otherwise wouldn't have had had they had to pay higher interest rates on their debts. And of course, because interest rates were kept so low for so long, they actually have much bigger debt now than they otherwise would have had because the low interest rates allow you to have more debt. I mean, one of the reasons that so many people were able to borrow so much money to overpay for homes was because the cost of borrowing was so low. But now when interest rates rise, right, now you have this massive debt, but it's no longer manageable because you don't have Uh, the low rates that enabled the debt in the first place. Now, meanwhile, you know, the Federal Reserve, I mean, these guys keep coming out, you know, and they keep pretending, or whether or not they're pretending or they're just so dumb they don't know, that everything is fine, that everything is on track, right? That they're just going to normalize rates, even though now they've defined normal uh, to be much lower than what we would have thought normal was before. But, you know, they don't get to just pick. And it's not like the Fed could just say, yeah, we have a lot of debt, And so we can't afford to have 5% interest rates like we did in the past. So now we're just going to say that, you know, we're only going to go two and a half, right? I mean, that investors, you know, the, the Fed funds rate should be 50 basis point above the inflation rate, right? Which we say is 2%. I mean, you can't just decree that because it takes two to tango. Somebody has to be willing to accept that rate of return. Somebody has to be willing to say, yeah, you know, 50 basis points above the inflation rate is fine with me, right? And, but I don't think so. I mean, if governments could do that, then why would anybody uh, ever have a currency crisis? Why would you have uh, central banks having to jack up interest rates to 10%, 20%, 40%, 50%? Sometimes they go to 100%, right? They're trying to stop their currencies from falling. They're trying to convince uh Uh, uh, people to lend the money or they're trying to prop up the bond market. If you could just say, well, no, you know, know, we're just going to pick a rate. They can't do that. Because what's going to happen is as the Fed tries to keep interest rates at a level that's very low relative to the amount of inflation that they're creating, relative to the fiscal condition of the United States, the markets are not going to allow them to get away with it. I mean, they may be able to get away with it for a very short period of time. But they're not going to get away with it for an extended period of time, especially if the inflation rate keeps going up, the more they ignore it. If they're just going to say, oh, well, we're going to let inflation exceed 2% for a while. Well, what what happens when it gets to 2.5? What happens when it gets to 3 or 3.5 or 4? I mean, are they really going to slam on the brakes and try to rein in that inflation? There's no way they could do that. Well, the markets are going to figure this out. And the party's over. There's no way the Fed could just say, well, just because we're broke and just because we have all this debt and because we can't afford normal interest rates, we're going to redefine normal to be this extra low rate because that's all we can afford. You know, the creditors are not going to sit back and allow that. They're not going to loan money at a rate that's so low. And especially even, you know, domestic creditors, too. You have to pay taxes on your interest income. You know, it's not even subject to a special rate, right? You've got to pay ordinary income taxes on your interest income. You know, if you make a loan to somebody, you know, you're you're in the thirty-seven percent bracket, and that doesn't even count your state. Well, you have to pay your income taxes on the nominal rate of interest, even though a good part of that nominal rate may simply be making you even for inflation. Right? So if in if inflation is you know, 10% and rates are 12%, right? You're getting 2% real interest rates, but you're paying income taxes on 12%. So if you look at your after-tax yield, by the time you pay taxes on 12%, you've got a negative rate of interest. I mean, that that first 10% should be tax-free, right? Because all it does is, is make you whole. You don't have any real income. You're just replacing the purchasing power you lost. But, you know, the lower the Fed keeps interest rates, Above the rate of inflation, right? The smaller that premium is, the the, the bigger the tax impact is, which means that your negative rates are even higher if the Fed is not allowing an adequate buffer between the inflation rate and the nominal interest rate. And of course, you know, as you get higher and higher inflation, it's not simply that the lender needs to be compensated for the inflation that is happening now, but He needs to be compensated for the inflation that is expected to happen in the future. And so if you've got massive debts that are running out of control, like we do, and you have a Fed that's already accommodating inflation, if you're going to make a long-term loan, let's say the inflation rate is 4% today, but you're looking at a 10-year loan, you're not going to assume that inflation stays at 4% for the 10 years. You're going to assume that it goes up. Maybe next year it's 5%, then maybe 8%, maybe not, who knows, right? So you've got to start to factor in uh, the expected anticipation of even higher rates of inflation in the future. So rates are under tremendous pressure uh, to go up. But of course, the Federal Reserve will be under tremendous political pressure to prevent them from going up uh, because of the lack of our ability to pay. Because, you know, as interest rates go up, that creates a huge problem for the people who have debts, who have to pay those debts. And it also creates problems for people who own assets that, you know, whose value is a function of interest rate. Right. So if you own real estate and you own stocks and you own bonds and the Federal Reserve is jacking up interest rates to try to mitigate the increase in inflation. Right. And, and, and tamp down on investor expectations as they're doing that. Those actions are causing the stock market to tank and the real estate market to tank. And obviously, that is very problematic politically. Uh, the owners of those assets don't like it, right? They take out their frustrations at the polls. So it is an incredible problem uh, when you're really stuck between that monetary rock and a hard place. And that is exactly what we're do- where we're headed. But, you know, you read these FOMC minutes and you look at the reaction in the mainstream and they act like there is nothing wrong. There are no problems. There's nothing to worry about. They've got everything under control. Everything is fine. Believe me, they have it less under control. It's less fine now than it was before the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, if if anyone thinks we had a big bubble to deal with them in the subprime market, right, what was going on in subprime real estate is nothing compared to what's going on in the overall economy now. They have got a much bigger tiger by the tail uh, than they had then. And nobody cares. And I want to um, finish up by talking about what's going on in the, uh, the cryptocurrency space. I mentioned it again in my last podcast that uh, Bitcoin was in a range of around 8,000 on the low side to 10,000 on the high side. And we broke through that today. I mean, we got down near 7,400 earlier in the day. We're back above 7,600 as I'm recording this podcast, but we are below uh, that 8,000. Support level. And I think the next level of support is going to be around 7,000. Remember, we had that one day about a month ago where we had a thousand dollar rally. I mean, Bitcoin was at 7,000 in the morning and it shot up to 8,000. And then kind of that was like where the new support was, which just gave way today. But I think the most interesting thing about the crypto decline now is the environment in which it's occurring. And of course, it's not just Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin is actually down less. Than most of your other uh, currencies, you have much bigger uh, losses in Ether, in Ripple, in you know, in Bitcoin Cash. You know, by the way, just like I don't know, last week Brian Kelly on CNBC Futures Now was like touting the hell out of Bitcoin Cash. I mean, they were really promoting this thing. I forget where it was. Maybe it was fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred dollars a coin. So you're already down thirty percent or so if you. You rushed in to buy Bitcoin Cash based on all the hype that was coming out of, uh, out of CNBC. But, you know, CNBC is probably one of the biggest promoters of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I mean, they have totally uh, brought this to the mainstream. I mean, they didn't talk about it every day when it was 100, 200, 1,000. I mean, they talked about it once in a while. It was kind of like a curiosity. And there was a lot more skepticism. They even had me on one day a couple of years ago debating Brian Kelly and, you know, about it. But, you know, they didn't talk about it a lot. Now, you know, they got the ticker up there. I mean, every single day, there's like an entire segment on this fast money. They might as well call it fast cryptocurrency now. I mean, forget about money. It's fast crypto money uh, because they pretty much dedicated the program to it. At the same time, they banned me. Remember, I think fast money was the last CNBC show that would actually have me on. And then for a while, they didn't actually let me on television. They would just have me on their website right, where I can talk on on CNBC.com. But now I can't even get an invitation to CNBC.com because they're too busy touting the cryptocurrencies. And I think one of the reasons they don't want me on is because they don't want me saying anything negative about cryptocurrency. Meanwhile, this guy, Brian Kelly, apparently, you know, he manages some fun. I mean, I mean, it's all to me, it's all pump and dump. I mean, he's talking his book. He's out there. He's making money in cryptos and every day he's got this megaphone he can get on a show and just pound the table on why you got to buy cryptocurrencies. And meanwhile, he owns a bunch of cryptocurrencies uh, and he's able to go out there and tout them day after day uh, on CNBC to a lot of unsuspecting viewers who I think are going to lose a lot of money uh, in these cryptocurrencies. And it's interesting that ever since they really started touting them, the prices have been going down. Now, I think that if they weren't giving uh, the, the cryptocurrency, so much positive financial coverage every single day, the prices would probably be a lot lower. I mean, so the the, the CNBC buyers are probably slowing down the decline and they're letting other people get out. But we'll see you know, if this ultimately presents some kind of a legal issue uh, for CNBC down the line when these things get completely wiped out. But let me go back to you know, where I was before I, I, I diverged over to the CNBC. The point I wanted to make is if you look at what's happening, in the world of currencies, which I think is very important for cryptocurrencies, we are having tremendous turmoil in the foreign exchange markets right now. I mean, particularly in the emerging markets. Look at what happened with Turkey. I mean, the Turkish lira is down about 20 percent this year. It was down 5 percent this morning. And then it rallied to be up about 2 percent. They had it finally the central bank, which had been under a lot of political pressure by the president, who's up for reelection, I think, next month. Not to raise rates, finally caved in and moved up interest rates 300 basis points. And that caused this one day reversal. We'll see if it's, you know, if it has legs. Uh, but my, my point is that you had the currency down 5% this morning, the Turkish lira. Bitcoin was down. And, you know, it was down the entire day. In fact, Bitcoin was probably down at the lows as much, if not more, than the Turkish lira. Uh, and most of the cryptocurrencies today are, Collapsing in price by five far more uh percentages than a lot of these uh currencies, and the whole idea behind Bitcoin was that it was supposed to be a safe haven in times of currency turmoil like if you if you live in Turkey and the Turkish lira is going down and you're worried and you want to protect your purchasing power, well, you go buy bitcoin right that was the the idea that's the the theme that is driving the demand supposedly that it is a safe haven it is a store of value it is digital gold it's very easy for people in the third world who have unreliable currencies they can protect themselves by buying bitcoin right in fact if you go back years ago remember the cyprus uh they had a crisis a banking crisis in cyprus there are these bail-ins i think it was back in 2013 i mean bitcoin obviously was very low but i remember Bitcoin really spiked up on that, maybe 20% move, 30% move in one day. Of course, the price was much lower back then, so the dollar value of the move was much smaller. But Bitcoin was getting a real bid. If the Cypriots were worried uh, about their money, they pulled it out of the bank and they, they bought Bitcoin. I mean, the same thing, it happened later in China in a bigger way. And there was a lot of Chinese money when the Chinese were kind of uh, clamping down and the people were worried about the Chinese currency losing value and they were trying to clamp down on people trying to get money out of China. All of a sudden, a lot of the Chinese were buying Bitcoin as an alternative, and that, and that gave it a lot of its momentum. Well, here you have all this currency turmoil all over the world, right? Currencies are getting clobbered left and right, yet the cryptocurrencies are getting clobbered even more. This is the environment when they're supposed to shine. Right? People who are fleeing these emerging market currencies are supposed to be rushing to the cryptocurrencies as a safe haven. Instead, you have a bigger flight out of the cryptocurrencies than you have out of the you know fiat currencies from the emerging market economy. So that shows me that it's not working, right? that Bitcoin is not a safe haven for anybody in any of these currencies, because, hey, if you lived in Turkey And last week you bought Bitcoin, you're actually better off in the lira. As much as the lira has gone down, if you bought Bitcoin to escape it, you lost even more. And of course, you know, I've been saying all along, there's no safe haven in these currencies. They are risk assets. They are speculative assets. But if they were safe haven, this is their time to shine. They should be going up now. Now, gold, right, gold hasn't really gone up, um, but it hasn't gone down much. And in fact, in terms of the Turkish lira, the price of gold has gone up quite a bit. In fact, it was up uh, quite a bit in the last week. Even though it was down in dollars, it was up in terms of Turkish lira. So if you were in Turkey and you were worried about the lira and you bought gold, well, you preserved purchasing power. If you bought cryptocurrencies, you did not. And, And so I think that the failure of Bitcoin to rally during this period could be a very important test that Bitcoin has just failed. And, you know, a lot of people on CNBC, you know, they're trying to come up with reasons why uh, Bitcoin is weak. And they're talking about regulatory crackdown. But you know what? I haven't seen any real meaningful new regulatory crackdowns that has happened this week, right? I think that it's just, you know, the momentum coming out of the currency. Look, Bitcoin rallied back up to 10,000, right? Could not get back above it. That's about a 50% of the old high. Which to me, if you're in a bear market, you run up to 20,000, you go all the way back down to 6,000, wherever we were, and then you can't get back to 10,000. You can't get back to half your old high, and now you turn back down. A, that shows you, okay, the speculators were not there. They wouldn't push it back to new highs. They couldn't even push it back above 50% of the prior high. Now we're going down to test support. And that support is failing. And now you've got this environment, which should be perfect for the cryptocurrencies. This is exactly what they want. Currency turmoil. Currencies imploding. People getting nervous. Central banks panicking. This is the ideal market for Bitcoin as digital gold or for these other currencies. And they're failing. Right? They are not rising. They do not have the appeal that they had when I mean, Cyprus had its crisis or China because the trade has played out. It's already run its course. And so now the name of the game is how to get out, how to cash out of your Bitcoin if you still have them. And of course, they need to keep drumming up new buyers, right? And thanks to CNBC, they can probably entice some more spec money into this market as the people who bought in a long time ago, you know, are and they are trying to get out and trying to find new buyers. But the story that Bitcoin or any other currency is going to act as a safe haven store of value for the emerging economies so that they can own Bitcoin as opposed to their own currencies uh, to protect their purchasing power. That story is falling apart right now. And nobody really is talking about that but me. I'm just a bystander, uh, you know, talking about it. By the way, I know I've got this big debate coming up uh, in early July in New York. I'm debating on Bitcoin. Apparently, it's all sold out uh and uh so you know it will be interesting to see where Bitcoin is uh by the time I go down to New York to debate uh its relevancy or its legitimacy or its future uh price or acceptance, but it's just interesting that to me, this is an important moment for the cryptocurrencies, and nobody is really talking about the significance of of what is going on, which is why. To me, it looks like the move is going to continue. Uh, maybe if they start talking about it and we start seeing some more uh, panic out there, we might be able to put in some type of short-term bottom before you have the next sucker rally. But to me, I think we're going down and uh, and taking out the lows uh, from the previous move down, which I believe was not just 7,000, it was just below 6,000. So we'll see. Of course, the last piece of the puzzle is that if cryptocurrencies are not the safe haven that they cracked up to be, that they've been advertised to be. What is? Obviously, from my perspective, that is gold. And so maybe if the cryptocurrencies aren't shining, gold will, right? If the cryptocurrencies were in the spotlight and it it dimmed, this may shine the light back on real gold. So if digital gold doesn't work, If it doesn't protect you in times of a currency crisis, maybe more people will look to real gold and maybe this collapse in digital gold can actually be the catalyst to spark the next major rally in the price of real gold.